Hey, it's Ian Altman. Thanks so much for taking the time to subscribe and share this program with your friends and colleagues. Really makes a huge difference. Today's episode, we're in for a treat. We're here with Scott Mounts. Now, Scott is a best-selling author of Make It Matter, How Managers Can Motivate by Creating Meaning. We're going to talk about some of the biggest mistakes that people make when it comes to motivation and employee engagement. We'll talk about specific assumptions that people make that are really catastrophic and give you insight into how you can motivate and inspire your team to get great results. There's a ton of great content. Here's my interview with Scott Mouts. Scott, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Ian. Been looking forward to this. You know, it's something that most people are either fearful of or look forward to <laughs> with excitement and anticipation. I'm glad in your case it's the latter. <laughs> <laughs> so, You're not as big of a scary of a bear as it, as it turns out. So no, I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. So first, tell our audience something they may not know about you. They may not know about – okay, my audience may not know that I spent – quite a few years in grad school uh, and some of the early days of my profession as a stand-up comedian. Really? Working, yeah, working comedy on the side. No, I guess technically speaking, uh, on many occasions I was paid, so I guess that makes me professional. I'll leave it to the audience to discern whether or not my material was professional worthy, but I mostly did it as a release uh, on the side from uh, you know the, the classic corporate job to have fun and have a place to kind of expose and just get my ideas out there and have a lot of fun with it. So, yeah, I, I don't think too many people know that about me necessarily. So, 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 so apparently Scott spent years exposing himself. And now, <laughs> exactly. just, just so everyone is comfortable listening, he's wearing <laughs> pants during this interview. So that was That's one right. of the preconditions. That <laughs> That's right. If you wearing right. pants. So, so Scott, I, I know that you are an expert when it comes to this whole idea of leading and motivating people. And before we get into what people should be doing, let's talk about some of the mistakes or misfires that people make when it comes to employee engagement or leadership. Yeah, where where do we start? You know, I'll start with one big obvious one, Ian, is the incredible, incorrect assumption that your workforce is engaged to begin with. As it turns out, you know, our friends at Gallup issue a poll that many of us are now very familiar with. About every three years now, I feel bad for these guys. They issue the same study with the same results that 70% of our workforce is disengaged. Seven zero. 70 is disengaged. And amongst that, 20% is actively disengaged. And I feel like in the popular business community and, and the folks that care about this kind of stuff, that's not necessarily news, yet we keep making the assumption that we're doing the right things and that people are deeply engaged at work. And the truth is a large percentage of them aren't. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have experienced this as leaders uh, within work, the, the job itself. Oh, yeah. And, and Scott, let me let me just for, for the benefit, because I'm, I'm familiar with the poll, but everyone listening may not be. So the difference between being disengaged and actively disengaged. Yes. Actively disengaged means you are actually engaged in sabotaging behaviors at work. And a lot of us know, you know, a coworker like that, where they will go out of their way to make work miserable for others and drag other people down because of what they're feeling in their own work life. That's what actively disengaged can be coded as. Yeah. So it's, it's people sucking other people into the vortex <laughs> of evil. Yeah, and, the and vampires. And yes. basically undermining the rest of the organization. So, so, and what what leads to that 
to that lack of engagement and that actively disengaged? I mean, what are what are some of the things that people do? Because my my sense is that we all know businesses that say, yeah, you know, you know, I'm not getting the most out of my employees, so I know I'm going to do this. That you and I would say, well, that's the stupidest thing you could possibly do, but they do it anyhow. What are some of the things that leaders do that they believe are going to engage people that actually might work the other way? Yeah, I'll, I'll just pick. I we could do the you know the world's first ten hour podcast on this topic. Ian. I'll just pick. A, <laughs> I'll pick a, a few for you. You know, one of the one of the big mistakes I get called into company. I do a lot of keynote speaking, and uh, I get called into companies afterwards to to help them reframe the work that their employees are doing. And leaders will often make the mistake, and I, sorry to be so blunt about this, but they'll, they'll make the mistake that their people actually really care about the work that they're doing and they care about the goals as much as the leaders do. They, they you know, leaders often miss the fact that they have the opportunity to reframe the work that they're, the people are doing to help it be more meaningful, more substantial, uh, more fulfilling than it is on a day-to-day basis. A lot of the leaders mistakenly assume, look, they're, they're here to get their paycheck, okay? They like the, uh, the nice uh, uh, layout of the office. And, uh, you know, that's enough. I was raised that way. I've, I've got steady employment, a decent place to work. They got a job and they got work, and that should be enough. And the truth is that just isn't the case anymore, and it never really was. And Yes, it's even more so with the influx of millennials into the workforce now, which are, of course, the majority of the workforce as of 2017. But more and more, people are looking for more than a paycheck. They're looking for more than the promotion. They're looking for more than the perks. They're looking for work that truly matters. And the leaders have a chance to reframe what people are doing and why it matters and goals that actually have intrinsic value rather than, hey, let's reach $200 million in sales. Who really cares about that goal? Yeah, so exactly. Unless the employee is getting a piece of that $200 million, they don't necessarily care. And I think that especially in the world of sales, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I did a keynote for the um, for a group called the Farmers Business Network recently, mm-hmm. and they actually work with family farms all around the country and now around the world on how to help them be more profitable, more successful, more independent in their business. And so one of the things we talked about is I said, look, you guys realize that if you're more effective at what you do, you're changing people's lives. I mean, you're mm-hmm. helping sustain agriculture in right. your community. You're helping make sure that somebody who was struggling and and could barely make ends meet, let alone send their kids to college or anything like that, is now taking vacations because you just helped them figure out how to make a quarter million dollars a year that they couldn't make before. So yes. you're not selling something. You're actually solving something important. And just the look on their face was like, you know, that's yeah. a really good point. And it's just, you know, it's inspirational when you see people who can make a difference like that. And once they really recognize that they're not selling anything – they're delivering amazing value to the people they serve. You just imbued purpose into their work. And what did it cost you, Ian? A few words? Well, ironically, it didn't cost me anything. But well, the, you know, um, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, what would it cost the average CEO or the average leader, I guess, is the point? Nothing, right? Yeah, so Nothing. exactly. So, so, so if we're talking about this idea of reframing, the notion of, hey, we're going to reach $300 million instead of, having something with purpose 
Um, what's the formula? How do, how do people get there? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. I'll pick just one for your listeners. And you know what's so interesting is some of the purposes that are the most compelling, they align with and they're in support of our most deeply held non-negotiable values. It could be as simple as this as a leader. If you can write down on a piece of paper values that you think you would share and your organization shares with its workers, you can then turn around and imbue those and, and really frame those values up within the context of that goal. So you're not going for, uh, I'll use the example, getting $200 million in top line sales improvement for the next fiscal year. You're, what you're trying to do is accomplish goal XYZ, something that speaks to people's values uh, in that job, whether it's a really important mission that the company stands for, what's behind that work, anything that imbues and speaks to intrinsically the values that the workers hold dear there's a super easy way to all of a sudden make that make anybody care about that goal. They have to be able to step back and say, you know, look, we're all we're all the same way, built as human beings, whether or not we want to admit it or not. There has to be something in it for you. And like you said, unless if you have an equity stake and you know, two hundred million dollars of increase, which by the way, will only have a certain amount of, of motivation over time, even if you're making a ton of money off of that. If, unless if you have intrinsic value built in, they're they're ultimately never gonna really be as motivated by your goal as you would hope. Sure. Well, and, and I think also one of the things that I see with organizations is they say, man, you know, you look at a company like Google and their employees are so highly engaged. And, you know, they have food and they have like foosball tables and ping pong tables. You know, we got to bring in food and foosball <laughs> tables and ping pong tables. So why why is that not the answer? Yeah. You know, so, so many people think that it is, too. And I'm so glad you brought up here's very quickly. Here's why. Here's the problem with perks. They soon become expectations. And at that point in time, they cease to have any motivational power. And frankly, they have much more power to, to demotivate more than anything else. Uh, it, food in that sense is, you know, is a tremendous, tremendous amount of perk. That becomes an expectation over time. And most people believe that it's, you know, hey, I, if I could just throw enough money at them, you know, it, wouldn't that be great? But that doesn't work out either. I'll give you a very quick story. There's a guy by the name of uh, uh, Dan Price. Uh, he's the CEO of uh, Gravity Payments, um, a, a credit card collection company based on the West Coast. And he very publicly, about two years ago, decided he was going to cut his CEO salary from a million bucks down to 70000 And he took the difference along with some personal wealth and redistributed to the company such that it turns out, oh my gosh, the minimum salary is $70,000 overnight. And in many cases, it meant that, you know, the employee's salary more than doubled. Well, why would he do that besides you know, the fact that he's such a great guy and a benefactor? Because he came across the same study that I did from Stanford, which showed the motivational apex of money peaks at $70,000. I'm not telling you that you can't continue to motivate Ian past 70000 in salary, but it reaches a point of diminishing returns very quickly. And so he thought... Why not jump? Let's just get what we're going to get from money from a motivation and engagement standpoint and move on to other more important things. And, and, and I wish more leaders would would realize it's not going to be the, the amount of money you throw at the employee either. So I, I love that part because, you know, where, where you say perks become expectations. Similarly, if I give somebody a raise, let's say they were making 70000 Now they're making 90000 <laughs> A week later, their expectation is, "Why well, just make ninety thousand? So now, what are you doing for me next?" But it becomes that level of, 
man, how am I surprising people? How am I how am I recognizing them for their accomplishments when they happen? So it's kind of surprises. It's it's like um, John Rulin, who's a uh, who's a friend. He's he's been a sponsor of the show in the past and great speaker. He wrote a book called Giftology. Mm-hmm. John talks about the mistakes that people make when it comes to gifting, and they and people send gifts around the holidays. and And John's like, it's the least effective time to send a gift because everybody's sending a gift around the holidays, <laughs> right. and it's a terrible thing. He said, you want to blow your customer away. Spend that money in March. Spend it in August when nobody's thinking about them, and now you stand out, and it's a surprise. I think the other the other aspect of this that that I see is, look, the reason why the the food and the activities and the masseuse and everything like that works at a place like Google is because their value is that look, it's critical to us that our employees feel well cared for and taken care of because then they can better serve our customers. So it's important for us that we care for, sincerely, our employees and our team. So if someone else doesn't really care about their team and buys all this stuff, nobody cares. It's like you know, on my team, the, the most frequent conversations I have with people on my team have to do with them not taking enough time off or following up with me on something when I know they have a family activity going on. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you doing this? You should be spending time with your family right now. And so I could say, I could have something on my website that says, I really care about our, you know, our team, but you know, that's just hollow words. If I, if I demonstrate to them that look, when given a choice of, something helping me or you making sure that your family is taken care of, I want you to pick your family, then they can be motivated to say, you know what, this person is genuinely interested in what I'm doing That's instead right. of instead of just themselves. So, so what are some of the things that organizations can do to create this, this clear buy-in, if you will, to make it so that their teams have that sense of motivation so – they have that understanding that says, "Wow, this the work we do really matters." What are, what are yeah. some of the, what are some of the steps that people can take? <clears throat> really well, uh, well put. What really matters, right? So I'll, I'll give you throw out a couple of things. Um, in uh, my first book, it's called uh, "Make It Matter." I talk about the markers of meaning, which are conditions that leaders can facilitate to create meaning in and at work, so that the employees really feels like you know, like it matters. I'll touch on a few very quickly. The big one you already talked about it, Ian. How intuitively you came to the conclusion of helping people's work have more purpose to it. That is one of the most important ways you can help reframe their work to help them to understand that it matters more. You can also help them to articulate. Hey, what do I want my legacy to be in this job? It is so interesting. When I ask the question of an audience, how many of you have had a chance to stop in this job you're in right now, right now, or that you're about to go to and articulate very specifically, what do I want my legacy to be within this job? What do I want to look back on five to 10 years from now and say, I did that. That simply would not have happened if it was not for me. I, no one ever says, boy, that's a dumb question. They always say, man, what a, what a good question. I just never had really time to think about that. So if you can sit with, as a leader with, a, with your people and be very specific about the legacy that they have the opportunity to leave behind, all of a sudden work elevates to a whole nother level. 
and you'll get you'll get by. You know, you'll get past the fact that the coffee machine in the break room never really seems to work because you're working for something a little bit more important than that. So, sure. those are a couple of uh, really important things. Here, here's a couple other things that you, it's going to blow you away the power of them, but how s- simple they are. Um, to, to help work matter more and create a meaning-rich work environment, which links with the highest-performing organizations. I, I'm a data nerd. I'm always surveying, Ian. I sense that you are as well. And one of the things that people always say, the behavior that drives me most nuts about my leader is micromanagement, right? You know, raise your hand if you love to be micromanaged. The other side of that, you know, that's the problem. The other side of that is the power that we can we have at our disposal, disposal just – by granting autonomy to our people. Being brave and saying, I'm gonna grant you autonomy and do it in the right way so it doesn't feel like you know, you're dumping instead of effectively delegating. You know, Setting them up to win, really giving them the resources they need to do, to do that. Being willing to check in, not just delegate and forget. And really treat the process of granting intelligent autonomy very, very seriously is incredibly powerful. And I'll give you one more just to, to prove that these are common sense things you can do that leaders are losing their sight of. The companies that are that rank consistently for being the most meaning rich, they hold sacred the opportunities for intentional learning and growth amongst their employees. They don't let meeting number 6,017 get in the way of an intentional designed learning opportunity. They don't let the latest visit from the exe- you know the CEO who's coming in out of town and get in the way. They hold opportunities to learn and grow together as a unit sacred. And it becomes so important because science teaches us, social science teaches us when we see ourselves as growing and become a better version of ourselves, it's tremendously meaning and uh, meaningful and rich. But- by the way, it's I, I I love I love some of these that it touched on. I want to I want to comment a little bit, which is the that autonomy side of it. I think part of it is also embracing risk and allowing uh. people to make mistakes. It's interesting whenever somebody joins my team. I've got I've got a new team member um, who joined recently, and the description. For their position, as I said, look, I, you know, I want to make sure you're bought into this this concept. We're going to do stuff together, and we're going to fail, and then yes. we're going to figure out why we failed, and we're going to figure out a better way to do it. But I just need to make sure that you're bought into the notion of taking risks that don't pan out. Yes. And if you're not okay with that, then you shouldn't you shouldn't work here. And if you are, then we're going to have some fun. And by the way, anything we do. If we can't laugh about it or have fun doing it, then we should probably find something else to do. <laughs> That's right. That's so, exactly right. So, and it's it's kind of it's kind of for me. It's like people are looking like, well, but what if someone gets makes a mistake? And the the number one thing that people say to me is, oh, well, you know, gee, you know, you saw someone who had a typo. I'm like, typos don't matter. Like, like people understand it was a typo. They don't think that you invented a new word. They realize it was a typo. And when someone says, oh, well, you had a typo, you know, I, you know, how much attention are they going to spend to other things? Look, if we send a draft agreement to somebody or we send an agreement to somebody and there's a typo, I promise you the person receiving it is not saying, man, you know, there's a typo in this thing. I, I wonder, I wonder if he's going to make up words when he's talking too. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you know, it was so interesting. I'll touch. I want to 
build on something you said behind that. So when you grant autonomy, right, you have to have a, a, an environment that's okay with risk taking. It's natural. It goes hand in hand for the person to be willing to ask for autonomy. They have to understand that, you know, look, there could be some failure here for the person granting it. They have to get past the fear that the failure could reflect on them. And what, what it boils down to really behind that, why we don't do that is a, is a fear of failure. That's the number one cause. You know, neuroscience is red hot right now, Ian. And neuroscientists uh, argue a lot because the field is so young. There's still so much we don't know about the human mind. But what they do agree on, the number one thing that is most concrete is a brain scan of a brain experiencing fear of failure, often related to they've just gotten more power and more autonomy. The, and what happens is in the parietal lobes of the brain, you can see the neurons firing, you know, oh, my gosh, alert, alert, alert. I, I'm, I'm fearing failure. What's fascinating in these scans is you look at the frontal lobe of the brain and it's completely dark, like mine is most days. And what's <laughs> happening is that's the part of the brain that's responsible for risk taking, discovery and growth. So we're up against a physical phenomenon that the fear of failure can literally shut down our desire to take uh, risks and, and to grow. So as a, as a leader, you have to understand that you're up against um, mental issues, you know, literally going back to the brain physically that can shut down our desire to take risks. And you have to be brave enough to reframe the fear of failure for them and help them understand that, look, failure doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. And we're going to agree together on what we'll get out of that failure if it happens. Sure. And Scott, let me, and I'm going to put you on the spot for something because I, I want to, I want to ask you a question when it comes to motivation when it comes to sales and there's there's a concept that i talk about that candidly i don't know if it makes sense or doesn't make sense and given your expertise i'm okay by the way with either answer i just i just kind of want to get your opinion on it so don't feel like you have to agree in fact if you disagree it's equally valuable i just i I just want to know the truth of it all fair Um, enough which which is one of one of the ways that that I try to position for salespeople because oftentimes salespeople, they deal with a lot of rejection and perceived failure. And one of the, one of the ways that I try to frame it for them is I say, look, your job when you go out to meet with potential clients is to see for whom you can have the greatest impact. Is this an organization I can have tremendous impact or not? And if you and the client conclude that you don't have a good fit, you didn't fail at all. You just concluded that you met somebody who you can't have a great impact for, and that's totally okay. So if I was focused on, well, my goal as an organization is to reach $200 million, then, wow, you didn't make a sale, so you failed. If my goal is I want to impact this many lives, I want to better the world for this number of people, which, by the way, I know when that happens, translates to $200 million, then when the salesperson goes out and doesn't have success, they don't feel like a failure. They're still motivated because they go, wow, great. Now I'm not going to waste time with someone who wasn't a good fit. I can spend time with somebody else. So where is that off target? Is it just my own um, my own hyperbole that I'm getting excited about? No. You know what? And, and believe me, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. I would tell you if I disagreed. But I vehemently agree. And let me just tell you a very quick story to, to, to highlight what you're onto is exactly right. So very, very quickly. Um, have you ever been to a casino, Ian? 
Um, well, it depends who's asking, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean during the workday when you're supposed to. Be, okay, uh, you know when you. So you've been in casino. There's one game in Vegas that um, has caused a problem for Vegas over the years because it, it creates a throughput problem. Too many people stand around and watch the game versus step up and play the game. You want to take a wild guess as to what that game might be? Um, is it roulette? Uh, or no. Craps? It's craps. Okay. And it's craps because um, it is the most confusing thing you've ever seen in your life. Yep. I, you know, I play craps uh, from time to time, and I don't know how to play craps. Uh, for those you know, the listeners exactly. that don't know what it is, it's a sunken table um, you know, up about, I don't know, you know, four feet off the ground, and it's incredibly complex looking. There's about nine million bets that you can, you can make. Um, even though I play it from time to time, you know, and I usually have about four beers in me when I'm playing it, I can never remember the rules, and I need help. Well, Vegas realizes that it was scaring people off. And so they started holding classes uh, on off hours of the casino, which is like, what, five to six in the morning and uh, inviting people and giving them an opportunity. It's actually 515 to 537. <laughs> right, but yeah. right, right, right. Exactly right. If you can work your way around all the people at the slot machines. Um, and so they they started, you know, I talked to a casino manager who they started holding classes with Monopoly money to teach people how to play this game. So what does this have to do with your point? It's really simple. There's a term called, you know, hey, you got to step up and roll the dice, right, that comes from Vegas. What you have done and what Vegas is figuring out is that people won't take the risk if they don't understand the rules. And this happens a lot in, in corporate life, you know. Uh, if you can define what the rules are of risk taking, which is what you're suggesting you do with a sales force, it becomes a different game. What happens if I take the risk? What if I fail? What does good really look like? Will you support me along the way? Who needs to improve this risk every step of the way? If I succeed, who will know about it? If I fail, who will know about it? Just having a simple conversation of being really clear on what the rules are of if you take that risk and you don't make it, can open up degrees of freedom in a workshop and make it so much easier to go forth and take a risk because it's aligned and you've taken the mystery out of it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, hey, Scott, if you had one single piece of advice that you could give people that says, look, here's how to help make sure that your team really cares about what it is that you're doing, that they're engaged, what's the, what's the one thing that you would tell people to do right away that says, look, Get your head around this and you'll be more successful. What would that be? Four words. It's not about you. The sooner as a leader that you can understand that. And I'm not there's nothing wrong with striving for success in your business life. The the, the quicker that you change it to striving for significance, though, you know, and, and the, the quicker you move from merely being to becoming. And you realize that, look, this is not about me. It's about me helping others become a better version of themselves, becoming more fulfilled in their place of work. I can promise you the business goals and the, and the impact of that, all of that will be met. All the success metrics you need to hit along the way, they will be a byproduct and a very happy byproduct of the simple fundamental truth of when you start behaving as a leader, that it's not about you. It's about those around you. Instincts kick in. And a lot of what I teach becomes a lot more natural to leaders. That's awesome. So, Scott, I, I know that I know that you've got um, a book coming up shortly called "Find the Fire," and obviously, once that's out, we'll make sure that our listeners know about it as well. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you and learn more about what you're doing? Oh, thanks for asking, uh, Ian. Easiest way is just to go uh, to my uh, website, which is just based on my name, Scott Mouts. 
dot com. Uh, it's two T's in Scott and then M A U T Z. Scottmouch.com. I have a contact tab there where if you want to reach out and inquire about keynoting, uh, you'll also find out about um, my first book, um, Make It Matter, which I'm very proud to say was um, leadership book uh, leadership book of the year 2016, first runner up. And you can learn about the the latest book, Find the Fire, coming out in October. That's awesome. Well, Scott, thanks so much for sharing your ideas. I took a ton of notes. I'm sure other people did. I'll give everybody a quick wrap-up, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ian. It's been an absolute blast. Hey, it's just great content shared by Scott. I want to thank those of you again for taking the time to post reviews, share this with your friends. It really means a lot to me, and I'm just always blown away by the nice notes and comments that I get. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can use and apply in your business right away. First, I love how Scott talks about the number one mistake is that people make an incorrect assumption that their employees are engaged already because we know from studies that 70% are disengaged and 20% are actually sabotaging your business. Remember, perks become expectations. And what we really want to make sure is that we're providing more purpose and let people build a legacy in their job. That idea of micromanagement has got to go. We want to make sure we deliver great autonomy. And finally, I love that tip. It's not about you. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you think I should cover or a guest I should have on the show, just drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.